Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, does Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? The Lost Room by Fitzjames O'Brien It was oppressively warm. The sun had long disappeared, but seemed to have left its vital spirit of heat behind it. The air rested. The leaves of the acacia trees that shrouded my windows hung plum-like on their delicate stalks. The smoke of my cigar scarce rose above my head, but hung about me in a pale blue cloud, which I had to dissipate with languid waves of my hand. My shirt was open at the throat, and my chest heaved laboriously in the effort to catch some breaths of fresher air. The noises of the city seemed to be wrapped in slumber, and the shrilling of the mosquitoes was the only sound that broke the stillness. As I lay with my feet elevated on the back of a chair, wrapped in that peculiar frame of mind in which thought assumes a species of lifeless motion, a strange fancy seized me of making a languid inventory of the principal articles of furniture in my room. It was a task well suited to the mood in which I found myself. Their forms were duskily defined in the dim twilight that floated shadowily through the chamber. It was no labour to note and particularise each, and from the place where I sat I could command a view of all my possessions without even turning my head. There was, in primis, that ghostly lithograph by Calame. It was a mere black spot on the white wall, but my inner vision scrutinised every detail of the picture. A wild, desolate midnight heath with a spectral oak tree in the centre of the foreground. The wind blows fiercely, and the jagged branches clothed scantily with ill-grown leaves are swept to the left continually by its giant force. A formless rack of clouds streams across the awful sky, and the rain sweeps almost parallel with the horizon. Beyond, the heath stretches off into endless blackness, in the extreme of which either fancy or art has conjured up some indefinable shapes that seem riding into space. At the base of the huge oak stands a shrouded figure, his mantle is wound by the blast in tight folds around his form, and the long cock's feather in his hat is blown upright, till it seems as if it stood on end with fear. His features are not visible, for he has grasped his cloak with both hands and drawn it from either side across his face. The picture is seemingly objectless, it tells no tale, but there is a weird power about it that haunts one. And it was for that I bought it. Next to the picture comes the round blot that hangs below it, which I know to be a smoking cap. It has my coat of arms embroidered on the front, and for that reason I never wear it, though when properly arranged on my head, with its long blue silken tassel hanging down by my cheek, I believe it becomes me well. I remember the time when it was in the course of manufacture— I remember the tiny little hands that pushed the coloured silk so nimbly through the cloth that it was stretched on the embroidery frame. The vast trouble I was put to to get a coloured copy of my armorial bearings for the heraldic work, which was to decorate the front of the band, the pursings up of the little mouth, 
and the contractions of the young forehead as their possessor plunged into a profound sea of cogitation touching the way in which the cloud should be represented from which the armed hand, that is my crest, issues. The heavenly moment when the tiny hands placed it on my head in a position that I could not bear for more than a few seconds, and I, king-like, immediately assumed my royal prerogative after the coronation, and instantly levied a tax on my only subjects, which was, however, not paid willingly. Ah, the cap is there, but the embroiderer has fled, for Atropos was severing the web of life above her head while she was weaving that silken shelter for mine. How uncouthly the huge piano that occupies the corner at the left of the room looms out in the uncertain twilight. I neither play nor sing, yet I own a piano. It is a comfort to me to look at it and to feel that the music is there, although I am not able to break the spell that binds it. It is pleasant to know that Bellini and Mozart, Cimarosa, Porpora, Gluck, and all such, or at least their souls, sleep in that unwieldy case. There lie embalmed, as it were, all operas, sonatas, orato oratorios, nocturnos, marches, songs and dances that ever climbed into existence through the four bars that wall in melody. Once I was entirely repaid for the investment of my funds in that instrument which I never use. Blochita, the composer, came to see me. Of course, his instincts urged him as irresistibly to my piano as if some magnetic power lay within it compelling him to approach. He tuned it, he played on it, all night long, until the grey and spectral dawn rose out of the depths of the midnight. He sat and played, and I lay smoking by the window, listening. Wild, unearthly, and sometimes insufferably painful, were the improvisations of Blochita. The chords of the instrument seemed breaking with anguish. Lost souls shrieked in his dismal preludes, the half-heard utterances of spirits in pain that groped at inconceivable distances from anything lovely or harmonious seemed to rise dimly up out of the waves of sound that gathered under his hands. Melancholy human love wandered out on distant heaths, or beneath dank and gloomy cypresses, murmuring his unanswered sorrow. Or hateful gnomes sported and sang in the stagnant swamps, triumphing in unearthly tones over the night whom they had lured to his death. Such was Blochita's night's entertainment, and when he at length closed the piano and hurried away through the cold morning, he left a memory about the instrument, from which I could never escape. Those snowshoes that hang in the space between the mirror and the door recall Canadian wanderings, a long race through the dense forests, over the frozen snow, through whose brittle crust the slender hoofs of the caribou that we were pursuing sank at every step, until the poor creature despairingly turned at bay in a small juniper coppice, and we heartlessly shot him down. And I remember how Gabriel the habitant and Francois the half-breed cut his throat, and how the hot blood rushed out in a torrent over the snowy soil. And I recall the snow cabane that Gabriel built, where we all three slept so warmly, 
and the great fire that glowed at our feet, painting all kinds of demoniac shapes on the black screen of forest that lay without, and the deer steaks that we roasted for our breakfast, and the savage drunkenness of Gabriel in the morning, he having been privately drinking out of my brandy flask all the night long. That long, haftless dagger that dangles over the mantelpiece makes my heart swell. I found it when a boy in a hoary old castle in which one of my maternal ancestors once lived. That same ancestor who, by the way, yet lives in history, was a strange old sea-king who dwelt on the extremest point of the southwestern coast of Ireland. He owned the whole of that fertile island called Inniskiran, which directly faces Cape Clear, where between them the Atlantic rolls furiously, forming what the fishermen of the place call the Sound. An awful place in winter is that same Sound. On certain days no boat can live there for a moment, and Cape Clear is frequently cut off for days from any communication with the mainland. This old sea-king, Sir Florence O'Driscoll by name, passed a stormy life, from the summit of his castle he watched the ocean, and when any richly laden vessels bound from the south to the industrious Galway merchants hove in sight, Sir Florence hoisted the sails of his galley, and it went hard with him if he did not tow into harbour ship and crew. In this way he lived, not a very honest mode of livelihood, certainly, according to our modern ideas, but quite reconcilable with the morals of the time. As may be supposed, Sir Florence got into trouble. Complaints were laid against him at the English court by the plundered merchants, and the Irish Viking set out for London to plead his own cause before good Queen Bess, as she was called. He had one powerful recommendation. He was a marvellously handsome man, not Celtic by descent, but half Spanish, half Danish in blood. He had the great northern stature with the regular features, flashing eyes and dark hair of the Iberian race. This may account for the fact that his stay at the English court was much longer than was necessary, as also for the tradition which a local historian mentions that the English queen evinced a preference for the Irish chieftain of other nature than that usually shown by monarch to subject. Previous to his departure, Sir Florence had entrusted the care of his property to an Englishman named Hull. During the long absence of the night, this person managed to ingratiate himself with the local authorities and gain their favour so far that they were willing to support him in almost any scheme. After a protracted stay, Sir Florence, pardoned of all his misdeeds, returned to his home. Home, no longer. Hull was in possession, and refused to yield an acre of the lands he had so nefariously acquired. It was no use appealing to the law, for its officers were in the opposite interest. It was no use appealing to the Queen, for she had another lover, and had forgotten the poor Irish knight by this time. And so the Viking passed the best portion of his life in unsuccessful attempts to reclaim his vast estates, and was eventually, in his old age, obliged to content himself with his castle by the sea, on the island of Inniskiran, the only spot of which the usurper was unable to deprive him. So this old story of my kinsman's fate looms up out of the darkness that enshrouds that haftless dagger hanging on the wall. 
It was somewhat after the foregoing fashion that I dreamily made the inventory of my personal property as I turned my eyes on each object one after the other or the places where they lay, for the room was now so dark that it was almost impossible to see with any distinctness. A crowd of memories connected with each rose up before me, and perforce I had to indulge them. So I proceeded but slowly, and at last my cigar shortened to a hot and bitter morsel that I could barely hold between my lips. While it seemed to me that the night grew each moment more insufferably oppressive. While I was revolving some impossible means of cooling my wretched body, the cigar stump began to burn my lips. I flung it angrily through the open window and stooped out to watch it falling. It first lighted on the leaves of the acacia, sending out a spray of red sparkles. Then, rolling off, it fell plump on the dark wall in the garden, faintly illuminating for a moment the dusky trees and breathless flowers. Whether it was the contrast between the red flash of the cigar stump and the silent darkness of the garden, or whether it was that I detected by the sudden light a faint waving of the leaves, I know not. But something suggested to me that the garden was cool. I will take a turn there, thought I, just as I am. It cannot be warmer than this room." And however still the atmosphere, there's always a feeling of liberty and spaciousness in the open air that partially supplies one's wants. With this idea running through my mind, I arose, lit another cigar, and passed out into the long, intricate corridors that led to the main staircase. As I crossed the threshold of my room, with what a different feeling I should have passed it had I known that I was never to set foot in it again. I lived in a very large house in which I occupied two rooms of the second floor. The house was old-fashioned, and all the floors communicated by a huge circular staircase that wound up through the centre of the building, while at every landing long, rambling corridors stretched off into mysterious nooks and corners. This palace of mine was very high, and its resources, in the way of crannies and windings, seemed to be interminable. Nothing seemed to stop anywhere. Cul-de-sacs were unknown on the premises. The corridors and passages, like mathematical lines, seemed capable of indefinite extension, and the object of the architect must have been to erect an edifice in which people might go ahead forever. The whole place was gloomy, not so much because it was large, but because an unearthly nakedness seemed to pervade the structure. The staircases, corridors, halls and vestibules all partook of a desert-like desolation. There was nothing on the walls to break the sombre monotony of those long vistas of shade. No carvings on the wainscoting, no moulded masks peering down from the simply severe cornices, no marble vases on the landings. There was an eminent dreariness and want of life, so rare in an American establishment, all over the abode. It was Hood's haunted house, put in order and newly painted. The servants, too, were shadowy and chary of their visits. Bells rang three times before the gloomy chambermaid could be induced to present herself, and the negro waiter, a ghoul-like looking creature from the Congo, 
obeyed the summons only when one's patience was exhausted or one's want satisfied in some other way. When he did come, one felt sorry that he had not stayed away altogether, so sullen and savage did he appear. He moved along the echoless floors with a slow, noiseless shamble until his dusky figure, advancing from the gloom, seemed like some reluctant afreet compelled by the superior power of his master to disclose himself. When the doors of all the chambers were closed, and no light illuminated the long corridor save the red, unwholesome glare of a small oil lamp on a table at the end where late lodgers lit their candles, one could not by any possibility conjure up a sadder or more desolate prospect. Yet the house suited me. Of meditative and sedentary habits, I enjoyed the extreme quiet. There were but few lodges, from which I infer that the landlord did not drive a very thriving trade, and these, probably oppressed by the sombre spirit of the place, were quiet and ghost-like in their movements. The proprietor I scarcely ever saw. My bills were deposited by unseen hands every month on my table while I was out walking or riding, and my pecuniary response was entrusted to the attendant of Freet. On the whole, when the bustling, wide-awake spirit of New York is taken into consideration, the sombre, half-vivified character of the house in which I lived was an anomaly that no one appreciated better than I who lived there. I felt my way down the wide, dark staircase in my pursuit of zephyrs. The garden, as I entered it, did feel somewhat cooler than my own room, and I puffed my cigar along the dim, cypress-shrouded walks with a sensation of comparative relief. It was very dark. The tall, growing flowers that bordered the path were so wrapped in gloom as to present the aspect of solid pyramidal masses, all the details of leaves and blossoms being buried in an embracing darkness, while the trees had lost all form and seemed like masses of overhanging cloud. It was a place and time to excite the imagination, for in the impenetrable cavities of endless gloom there was room for the most riotous fancies to play at will. I walked and walked, and the echoes of my footsteps on the ungraveled and mossy path suggested a double feeling. I felt alone, and yet in company at the same time. The solitariness of the place made itself distinct enough in the stillness, broken alone by the hollow reverberations of my step, while those very reverberations seemed to imbue me with an undefined feeling that I was not alone. I was not therefore much startled when I was suddenly accosted from beneath the solid darkness of an immense cypress by a voice saying, Will you give me a light, sir? Certainly, I replied, trying in vain to distinguish the speaker amidst the impenetrable dark. Somebody advanced and I held out my cigar. All I could gather definitively about the individual who thus accosted me was that he must have been of extremely small stature, for I, who am by no means an overgrown man, had to stoop considerably in handing him my cigar. The vigorous puff that he gave his own lighted up my Havana for a moment, and I fancied that I caught a glimpse of long, wild hair. 
The flash was, however, so momentary that I couldn't even say certainly whether this was an actual impression or the mere effort of imagination to embody that which the senses had failed to distinguish. Sir, you're out late, said this unknown to me, as he, with half-uttered thanks, handed me back my cigar, for which I had to grope in the gloom. Not later than usual, I replied dryly. Hmm, you are fond? Of late wanderings, then. That is just as the fancy seizes me. Do you live here? Yes. Queer house, isn't it? But I have only found it quiet. Hmm. But you will find it queer. Take my word for it. This was earnestly uttered, and I felt at the same time a bony finger laid on my arm that cut it sharply like a blunted knife. I cannot take your word for any such assertion, I replied rudely, shaking off the bony finger with an irrepressible motion of disgust. No offence, no offence, muttered my unseen companion rapidly, in a strange, subdued voice that would have been shrill had it been louder. Your being angry doesn't alter the matter. You will find it a queer house. Everybody finds it a queer house. Do you know who lived there? I never busy myself, sir, about other people's affairs, I answered sharply, for the individual's manner, combined with my utter uncertainty as to his appearance, oppressed me with an irksome longing to be rid of him. Oh, you don't? Well, I do. I know what they are. Well, well, well. And as he pronounced the three last words, his voice rose with each until, with the last, it reached a shrill shriek that echoed horribly among the lonely walks. Do you know what they eat? he continued. No, sir, nor care. Oh! But you will care. You must care. You shall care. I'll tell you what they are. They are enchanters. They are ghouls. They are cannibals. Did you never remark their eyes, and how they gloated on you when you passed? Did you never remark the food that they served up at your table? Or did you never, in the dead of night, hear muffled and unearthly footsteps gliding along the corridors, and stealthy hands turning the handle of your door? Does not some magnetic influence fold itself continually around you when they pass and send a thrill through spirit and body and a cold shiver that no sunshine will chase away? Oh, you have. You have felt all these things. I know it. With earnest rapidity, the subdued tones, the eagerness of accent with which all this was uttered impressed me most uncomfortably. It really seemed as if I could recall all those weird occurrences and influences of which he spoke, and I shuddered, in spite of myself, in the midst of the impenetrable darkness that surrounded me. Hmm, said I, assuming, without knowing it, a confidential tone. May I ask how you know these things? How I know them? Because I am their enemy. Because they tremble at my whisper. Because I hang upon their track, with the perseverance of a bloodhound and the stealthiness of a tiger, because, because, I was one of them once, 
Wretch, I cried excitedly, for involuntarily his eager tones had wrought me up to a high pitch of spasmodic nervousness. Then you, you mean to say that you... As I uttered this word, obeying an uncontrollable impulse, I stretched forth my hand in the direction of the speaker and made a blind clutch. The tips of my fingers seemed to touch a surface as smooth as glass that glided suddenly from under them. A sharp angry hiss sounded through the gloom, followed by a whirring noise, as if some projectile passed rapidly by, and the next moment I felt instinctively that I was alone. A most disagreeable feeling instantly assailed me, a prophetic instinct that some terrible misfortune menaced me, an eager and overpowering anxiety to get back to my own room without loss of time. I turned and ran blindly along the dark cypress alley, every dusky clump of flowers that rose blackly in the borders, making my heart each moment cease to beat. The echoes of my own footsteps seemed to redouble and assume the sounds of unknown pursuers following fast upon my track. The boughs of lilac bushes and syringas that here and there stretched partly across the walk seemed to have been furnished suddenly with hooked hands that sought to grasp me as I flew by, and each moment I expected to behold some awful and impassable barrier fall across my track and wall me up forever. At length I reached the wide entrance. With a single leap I sprang up the four or five steps that formed the stoop and dashed along the hall, up the wide echoing stairs and again along the dim funereal corridors until I paused, breathless and panting, at the door of my room. Once so far I stopped for an instant and leaned heavily against one of the panels, panting lustily after my late run. I had, however, scarcely rested my whole weight against the door when it suddenly gave way and I staggered in, head foremost. To my utter astonishment, the room I had left in profound darkness was now a blaze of light. So intense was the illumination that, for a few seconds, while the pupils of my eyes were contracting under the sudden change, I saw absolutely nothing save the dazzling glare. This fact in itself, coming on me with such utter suddenness, was sufficient to prolong my confusion, and it was not until after several minutes had elapsed that I perceived the room was not only illuminated, but occupied. And such occupants. Amazement at the scene took such possession of me that I was incapable of either moving or uttering a word. All that I could do was to lean against the wall and stare blankly at the strange picture. It might have been a scene out of Faublas or Gramont's memoirs or happened in some palace of Minister Folk. Round a large table in the centre of the room, where I had left a student-like litter of books and papers, were seated half a dozen persons. Three were men and three were women. The table was heaped with a prodigality of luxuries. Luscious eastern fruits were piled up in silver filigree vases, through whose meshes their glowing rinds shone in the contrasts of a thousand hues. 
Small silver dishes that Benvenuto might have designed, filled with succulent and aromatic meats, were distributed upon a cloth of snowy damask. Bottles of every shape, slender ones from the Rhine, stout fellows from Holland, sturdy ones from Spain, and quaint basket-woven flasks from Italy absolutely littered the board. Drinking glasses of every size and hue filled up the interstices, and a thirsty German flagon stood side by side with the aerial bubbles of Venetian glass that rest so lightly on their thread-like stems. An odour of luxury and sensuality floated through the apartment. The lamps that burned in every direction seemed to diffuse a subtle incense on the air, and in a large vase that stood on the floor I saw a mass of magnolias, tuberoses and jasmines grouped together, stifling each other with their honeyed and heavy fragrance. The inhabitants of my room seemed beings well suited to so sensual an atmosphere. The women were strangely beautiful, and all were entired in dresses of the most fantastic devices and brilliant hues. Their figures were round, supple and elastic, their eyes dark and languishing, their lips full, ripe and of the richest bloom. The three men wore half-masks, so that all I could distinguish were heavy jaws, pointed beards and brawny throats that rose like massive pillars out of their doublets. All six lay reclining on Roman couches about the table, drinking down the purple wines in large draughts and tossing back their heads and laughing wildly. I stood, I suppose, for some three minutes with my back against the wall, staring vacantly at the bacchanal vision before any of the revellers appeared to notice my presence. At length, without any expression to indicate whether I had been observed from the beginning or not, two of the women arose from their couches and approaching took each a hand and led me to the table. I obeyed their motions mechanically. I sat on a couch between them, as they indicated. I unresistingly permitted them to wind their arms around my neck. "'You must drink,' said one, pouring out a large glass of red wine. "'Here is a Clovugio of a rare vintage. "'And here,' pushing a flask of amber-hued wine before me, is lacrima Christi. You must eat, said the other, drawing the silver dishes towards her. Here are cutlets stewed with olives, and here are slices of a filet stuffed with bruised sweet chestnuts. And as she spoke, she, without waiting for a reply, proceeded to help me. The sight of the food recalled to me the warnings I had received in the garden, the sudden effort of memory restored to me my other faculties at the same instant. I sprang to my feet, thrusting the women from me with each hand. Demons! I almost shouted. I will have none of your accursed food. I know you. You are cannibals. You are rules. You are enchanters. Be gone, I tell you. Leave my room in peace. A shout of laughter from all six was the only effect that my passionate speech produced. The men rolled on their couches and their half-masks quivered with the convulsions of their mirth. The women shrieked and tossed the slender wine-glasses wildly aloft and turned to me and flung themselves on my bosom, fairly sobbing with laughter. 
Yes, I continued as soon as the noisy mirth had subsided. Yes, I say, uh, leave my room instantly. I will have none of your unnatural orgies here. His room, shrieked the woman on my right. His room, echoed she on my left. His room, he calls it his room, shouted the whole party as they rolled once more into jocular convulsions. How know you that this is your room? said one of the men who sat opposite me at length, after the laughter had once more somewhat subsided. How do I know? I replied indignantly. How do I know my own room? How could I mistake it, pray? There's my furniture, my piano. He calls that a piano, shouted my neighbours again in convulsions, as I pointed to the corner where my huge piano, sacred to the memory of Blokita, used to stand. Oh, yes, it is his room. There, there is his piano. The peculiar emphasis they laid on the word piano caused me to scrutinise the article I was indicating more thoroughly. Up to this time, though utterly amazed at the entrance of these people into my chamber, and connecting them somewhat with the wild stories I had heard in the garden, I still had a sort of indefinite idea that the whole thing was a masquerading freak got up in my absence, and that the bacchanalian orgy I was witnessing was nothing more than a portion of some elaborate hoax of which I was to be the victim. But when my eyes turned to the corner where I had left a huge and cumbrous piano, and beheld a vast and sombre organ lifting its fluted front to the very ceiling, and convinced myself by a hurried process of memory that it occupied the very spot in which I had left my own instrument, the little self-possession that I had left forsook me. I gazed around me, bewildered. In like manner everything was changed. In the place of that old haftless dagger connected with so many historic associations personal to myself, I beheld a Turkish yatagan dangling by its belt of crimson silk, while the jewels in the hilt blazed as the lamplight played upon them. In the spot where hung my cherished smoking cap, memorial of a buried love, a knightly cask was suspended on the crest of which a golden dragon stood in the act of springing. That strange lithograph of Kalame was no longer a lithograph, but it seemed to me that the portion of the wall which it covered, or the exact shape and size, had been cut out, and in place of the picture a real scene on the same scale and with real actors was distinctly visible. The old oak was there, and the stormy sky was there, but I saw the branches of the oak sway with the tempest, and the clouds drive before the wind. The wanderer in his cloak was gone, but in his place I beheld a circle of wild figures, men and women, dancing with linked hands around the hole of a great tree, chanting some wild fragment of a song, to which the winds roared an unearthly chorus. The snowshoes, too, on whose sinewy woof I had sped for many days amidst Canadian wastes, had vanished and in their place lay a pair of strange upcurled Turkish slippers that had, perhaps, been many a time shuffled off at the doors of mosques beneath the steady blaze of an orient sun. All was changed. Wherever my eyes turned they missed familiar objects yet encountered strange representatives. Still, in all the substitutes there seemed to me a reminiscence of what they replaced. They seemed only for a time transmuted into other shapes, 
and there lingered around them the atmosphere of what they had once been. Thus I could have sworn the room to have been mine, yet there was nothing in it that I could rightly claim. Everything reminded me of some former possession that it was not. I looked for the acacia at the window, and lo, long silken palm leaves swayed in through the open lattice, yet they had the same motion and the same air of my favourite tree, and seemed to murmur to me. Though we seem to be palm leaves, yet are we acacia leaves, yea, those very ones on which you used to watch the butterflies alight, and the rain patter while you smoked and dreamed. So in all things the room was, yet was not, mine, and a sickening consciousness of my utter inability to reconcile its identity with its appearance overwhelmed me and choked my reason. "'Well, have you determined whether or not this is your room?' asked the girl on my left, proffering me a huge tumbler creaming over with champagne and laughing wickedly as she spoke. "'It is mine,' I answered, doggedly, striking the glass rudely with my hand and dashing the aromatic wine over the white cloth. "'I know that it's mine, and ye are jugglers and enchanters who want to drive me mad.' "'Hush, hush,' she said gently." not in the least angered by my rough treatment. You are excited. Alf shall play something to soothe you. At a signal, one of the men sat down at the organ. After a short, wild, spasmodic prelude, he began what seemed to me to be a symphony of recollections, dark and sombre, and all through full of quivering and intense agony. It appeared to recall a dark and dismal night, on a cold reef, around which an unseen but terribly audible ocean broke with eternal fury. It seemed as if a lonely pair were on the reef, one living, the other dead, one clasping his arms around the tender neck and naked bosom of the other, striving to warm her into life, when his own vitality was being each moment sucked from him by the icy breath of the storm. Here and there a terrible wailing minor key would tremble through the chords like the shriek of seabirds or the warning of advancing death. While the man played, I could scarce restrain myself. It seemed to be Blokita whom I listened to and on whom I gazed. That wondrous night of pleasure and pain that I had once passed listening to him seemed to have been taken up again at the spot where it had broken off, and the same hand was continuing it. I stared at the man called Alf. There he sat with his cloak and doublet and long rapier and mask of black velvet. But there was something in the air of the peaked beard, a familiar mystery in the wild mass of raven hair that fell as if wind-blown over his shoulders, which riveted my memory. Blokita! Blokita! I shouted, starting up furiously from the couch on which I was lying, and bursting the fair arms that were linked around my neck as if they had been hateful chains. Blokita, my friend, speak to me, I entreat you. Tell these horrid enchanters to leave me. Say that I hate them. Say that I command them to leave my room. The man at the organ stirred not in answer to my appeal. He ceased playing and the dying sound of the last note he had touched faded off into a melancholy moan. The other men and the women burst once more into peals of mocking laughter. "'Why will you persist in calling this your room?' said the woman next to me, with a smile meant to be kind, but to me inexpressibly loathsome. 
Have we not shown you by the furniture, by the general appearance of the place, that you are mistaken, and that this cannot be your apartment? Rest content, then, with us. You are welcome here, and need no longer trouble yourself about your room. Rest content, I answered madly. Live with ghosts, eat of awful meats, and see awful sights. Never, never, you have cast some enchantment over the place that has disguised it. But for all that, I know it to be my room. You shall leave it. Softly, softly, said another of the sirens. Let us settle this amicably. This poor gentleman seems obstinate and inclined to make an uproar. Now, we do not want an uproar. We love the night and its quiet. And there is no night that we love so well as that on which the moon is coffined in clouds. Is that not so, my brothers? An awful and sinister smile gleamed on the countenances of her unearthly audience and seemed to glide visibly from underneath their masks. Now, she continued, I have a proposition to make. It would be ridiculous for us to surrender this room simply because this gentleman states that it is his. And yet I feel anxious to gratify, as far as may be fair, his wild assertion of ownership. A room, after all, is not much to us. We can get one easily enough. But still, we should be loath to give this apartment up to so imperious a demand. We are willing, however, to risk its loss. Uh, that is to say, turning to me, I propose that we play for the room. If you win, we will immediately surrender it to you just as it stands. If, on the contrary, you lose, you shall bind yourself to depart and never molest us again. Agonised at the ever-darkening mysteries that seemed to thicken around me, and despairing of being able to dissipate them by the mere exercise of my own will, I caught almost gladly at the chance thus presented to me. The idea of my loss or my gain scarce entered my calculations. All I felt was an indefinite knowledge that I might, in the way proposed, regain in an instant that quiet chamber and that peace of mind of which I had so strangely been deprived. I agree, I cried eagerly, I agree, anything to rid myself of such unearthly company. The woman touched the small golden bell that stood near her on the table, and it had scarce ceased to tinkle when a negro dwarf entered with a silver tray on which were dice boxes and dice. A shudder passed over me as I thought in this stunted African I could trace a resemblance to the ghoul-like black servant to whose attendance I had been accustomed. Now, said my neighbour, seizing one of the dice boxes and giving me the other, the highest wins. Shall I throw first? I nodded assent. She rattled the dice, and I felt an inexpressible load lifted from my heart as she threw fifteen. It is your turn, she said with a mocking smile. But, before you throw, I repeat the offer I made to you before. Live with us. Be one of us. We will initiate you into our mysteries and enjoyments, enjoyments of which you can form no idea unless you experience them. Come, it is not too late to change your mind. Be with us. My reply was a fierce oath as I rattled the dice with spasmodic nervousness and flung them on the board.
They rolled over and over again, and during that brief instant I felt a suspense, the intensity of which I have never known before or since. At last they lay before me. A shout of the same horrible, maddening laughter rang in my ears. I peered in vain at the dice, but my sight was so confused that I could not distinguish the amount of the cast. This lasted for a few moments. Then my sight grew clear, and I sank back almost lifeless with despair as I saw that I had thrown. But twelve. Lost! Lost! screamed my neighbour with a wild laugh. Lost! Lost! shouted the deep voices of the masked men. Leave us, coward! they all cried. You are not fit to be one of us. Remember your promise. Leave us. Then it seemed as if some unknown power caught me by the shoulders and thrust me towards the door. In vain I resisted. In vain I screamed and shouted for help. In vain I implored them for pity. All the reply I had was those mocking peals of merriment, while, under the invisible influence, I staggered like a drunken man toward the door. As I reached the threshold, the organ pealed out a wild, triumphal strain. The power that impelled me concentrated itself into one vigorous impulse that sent me blindly staggering out into the echoing corridor, and as the door closed swiftly behind me, I caught one glimpse of the apartment I had left forever. A change passed like a shadow over it. The lamps died out. The siren women and masked men vanished. The flowers, the fruits, the bright silver and bizarre furniture faded swiftly, and I saw again for the tenth of a second my own old chamber restored. There was the acacia waving darkly. There was the table littered with books. There was the ghostly lithograph, the dearly beloved smoking cap, the Canadian snowshoes, the ancestral dagger, and there, at the piano, organ no longer, sat Blokita playing. The next instant the door closed violently, and I was left, standing in the corridor, stunned and despairing. As soon as I had partially recovered my comprehension, I rushed madly to the door with the dim idea of beating it in. My fingers touched a cold and solid wall. There was no door. I felt all along the corridor for many yards on both sides. There was not even a crevice to give me hope. I rushed downstairs shouting madly. No one answered. In the vestibule I met the negro. I seized him by the collar and demanded my room. The demon showed his white and awful teeth, which were filed into a saw-like shape, and extricating himself from my grasp with a sudden jerk, fled down the passage with a gibbering laugh. Nothing but echo answered to my despairing shrieks. The lonely garden resounded with my cries as I strode madly through the dark walls, and the tall funereal cypresses seemed to bury me beneath their heavy shadow. I met no one, could find no one. I had to bear my sorrow and despair alone. Since that awful hour, I have never found my room. Everywhere I look for it, yet never see it. Shall I ever find it? 
Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? So that was The Lost Room by Fitzjames O'Brien. And this was um, suggested by and brought to my attention by Jay, also known as Wild Child Prime, who's one of my patrons. So thank you to him. And uh, this is uh, he's uh, in the top um, patron thing, and you, uh, you can name a story. And I'll read the story as long as it's within... It's not a million words long. It's it's a reasonable length. It's um, not in copyright. It's uh, it, it and it's uh, available. I can find a copy, you know, and uh, all those things. And also that it falls within the supernatural genre, really, and within the idea of a classic ghost story, I suppose, or a classic supernatural story. So yeah, so that that's one of the perks of being a so-called vampire. Anyway, thanks, Jay. It was a good story. I really liked it. Let me tell you something about the author. So in brief, Fitzjames O'Brien, born around 1828 in County Limerick in Ireland, died April 6, 1862 in Cumberland, Maryland in the USA. He was an Irish-born American journalist, playwright and author whose psychologically penetrating tales of pseudoscience and the uncanny made him one of the forerunners of modern science fiction. When you dig into it, you find alternatives sometimes. And this, this, they've got a version here that says he was born um, actually in Cork, but when the family were young, they moved to Limerick. He attended Trinity College in Dublin and is believed to have been a soldier in the British Army at one time. On leaving college, he went to London and spent his inheritance of 8,000. So he wasn't uh, born into a poor family, um, meanwhile editing a periodical in aid of the World's Fair of 1851. About 1852, he emigrated to the USA, changing his names to Fitzjames. Uh, and uh, he had been a writer even when at college, he, and he'd done Irish, um, you know, not surprisingly. 1856, he did um, a couple of uh, poems, Loch Ine and Irish Castles, in the Ballads of Ireland, published in 1856. He wrote, when he was in the US, he wrote for the New York Times and the American Whig Review. I, I've always subscribed to that one. No, it's been silly. Um, he, he wrote for Harper's Magazine uh, beginning in 1853 with a story called The Two Skulls, and he contributed more than 60 articles to Harper's Magazine. He wrote for Putnam's Magazine, Vanity Fair, The Atlantic Monthly. So these are all really prestigious um, uh, periodicals. The Diamond Lens, 1858, and The Wondersmith, were published in Atlantic, the Atlantic Monthly. They put Atlantic Monthly publish um, uh, Shirley Jackson and people like that, you know, as well. And Edith Wharton, I think. Um, so they're a, a, a renowned, and you probably know all about them more than me. So his most famous story is a bit of a SF story, sci-fi. Invents a powerful microscope and discovers a beautiful female in a microscopic world inside a drop of water. He seems to be have a thing about beautiful females. They appear in this story as well. So H.P. Uh, Lovecraft was an admirer of his work. When the American Civil War began, not the Irish Civil War or the English Civil War, we've all had a few civil wars, to be fair, uh, and, um, but he joined, he was in the US, and he joined the 7th Regiment of the New York National Guard, hoping to be sent to the front. He was stationed at Camp Cameron outside Washington, D.C. for six weeks. When his regiment returned to New York, he received an appointment on the staff of General Frederick W. Lander. He was severely wounded in a skirmish on 26 February 1862 and lingered until April when he died of tetanus at Cumberland, Maryland. So it appears that he died related to wounds um, uh, gained 
that's the right word, during the American Civil War. So um, a great loss, really. See, he's a very talented guy. So I, I thought about this story. I, it, you know, I have a... The more I read stories like this, I tend to think, oh, it's a bit like this, it's a bit like this, it's a bit like... So it's it's that kind of mid-19th century dreaminess that you get in Clarimonde, which was um, a French story, which we did. And... Um, also, I did the Murray Gilchrist story, the the Crimson Weaver, which I really liked. And I, from our discussion group on the Friday night, we have every other Friday on the Discord server. Um, it seems that it, what my liking of the story wasn't universally shared, but I like and and also it strikes me a bit like Clark Ashton Smith. So um, some stories, I mean, you get somebody like Edith Wharton or um, Conan Doyle or you know these people who wrote. St- stories in, in not you know not on a production line but you know it was their living and they they turned them out oh henry people like this and they 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 are they are structured um and you get the impression that um those writers are mainly planners so they pretty much know what the story is going to go like pretty much before they start and and it has a sim- symmetry and i admire the craft in that i try to do that myself but then there's another school, which is the the pantsers. So you're right by the seat of your pants. This is not me invented these things. Of course, Stephen King is a very famous pantser. J.K. Rowling is a very famous planner. And um, the pantsers. And I get this kind of feeling. And, of course, remember, this is pre-surrealism. It's pre-psychoanalysis. It's pre-dadaism and all that kind of th- stuff that was going to crop up within the next... 50 years but you can almost feel the current of it um and it's like um i get the impression that this just erupted from his subconscious with its luscious uh, sensual description and scenes um and and you know you at the end you're like with the plant story you have a feeling of ah and you could say what it's about it is it is a moral tale about whatever um, or it is um, a, 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 um, an illustration of uh, human greed or, you know, it's about something. And, of course, um, these days, Hollywood, you know, there's these famous manuals of script writing. They, the theme is important and they sit and put that in. What is this story about? What is this story about? I'm not knocking that. I think there's a lot to be said from it. But it, it appears to me that this, and almost like uh, Kafka as well, you know, you read... I don't know whether Kafka was a planner or a pantser. I feel, and Bruno Schultz, so I'm just dropping these names now, so brrr, machine gun. But um, you, you get the impression that they are, so the, the surrealists and people like this and, and the birth of psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis was about um, let this stuff rise up from the unconscious. It is not under conscious control and it comes up with these um, uh, beautiful and, you know, overpoweringly sensual in some cases um, images, not not overpowering these, but luscious, aren't they? They're luscious. Um, the other kind of influence I think about is things like that were going on, like the Europeans and were, were finding out about, were becoming Orientalists, weren't they? So they were starting to become interested in Eastern things, not just, you know, people like Schopenhauer becoming interested in, in Indian religion, but also... Um, What's his name? The the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam by Edward Fitzgerald. Um, this this liking for the East, 
And you see that in this, you know, Orientalism isn't Edward Said's thing about Orientalism, the fetishization of the Orient by the European mind. And of course, um, well, it was the 1780s, Napoleon went to Egypt and, you know, so, so the Ottoman Empire, all of this. It seems to me that this is an influence on this story, this the, the the luxuriousness of the East, and then again we've got the the other influence. I think it's accomplished in that it's thrown a lot of things in, which which actually work together. We have the Gothic, don't we? With the cannibals, we have the um, which feels strangely modern that idea, um, and we have the, the the Gothic literature from the 1700s coming through. Where where we have these the Gothic edifice, the Gothic building it could be a castle in this case. It's a rambling, half decayed, um, mysterious old house whose owners we're not sure who they are, and he meets an odd man in the garden. And there is that. So we have the Orientalism of these. Um, if and he mentions Ifrits, doesn't he? Which are Arabic demons or yeah, Middle Eastern demons anyway. And uh, we did um, a story by Iqbal Hussein, a Pakistani. A, a, a story about Pakistan uh, and some of the the demons and stuff there, modern story. But uh, so I I feel that there is this Orientalism, but also a big chunk of European Gothic or American European Gothic, and uh, and I feel it's just welled out. So that isn't to say there isn't a structure at all, because clearly. The objects that he mentions, and at the beginning, when I was going through the story, I was thinking, "What is the point of just listing?" The, so, one, the descriptions and the little storyettes attached to each object were in them, and that's quite Oriental. Mind skipping around a lot, you know. I think of the Arabian Nights stories within, excuse me, stories within stories nested within stories. So that is that is feels Oriental as well. Um. Richard Burton had translated the Arabian Nights and things like that, of course. So there, I think definitely Orientalism is in there. But um, what was the purpose of those? In a sense, they they later become transformed into Oriental versions of themselves. So he's a play on, on the, you know, the Gothic transforming itself into the Oriental. And they're not unrelated. But um, if you're still with me... Um, and I suppose the purpose of them might be to make the loss of the room more poignant. So it may be that he did sit and have a good think about this because um, if it had just been a room that he'd lost and it's in a, this weird house and he hasn't been there for very long. So, yeah, what is your attachment to that room? I've lived in some grim places and was glad to be shot of them, you know. But... Um, you know, so I think he loses his possession. So there is some kind of emotional attachment, and we could be, go all symbolic at that. But the purpose of the object is to anchor the room and make it valuable. So he loses not just the room, but these memories and these resonances. And one of them is the memory. is a memory of this beloved uh, piano, Blockita. And although he's, um, I don't know what uh, what uh, he's, he's um, I mean, I don't know if, we're talking at different times now, but Fitz James O'Brien, I don't know what he's... Um, whether he like girls or boys or both, but um, he, he there's clearly an emotional attachment to this male, uh, and I may be making too much out of that. But so there we are. I think the purpose of the objects is to make the loss of the room more poignant because he's there is lost. So what does that symbolise then? So let's step back from that because it's not really about a room, is it? Um, 
I don't know. It's about, it's about the room is himself. The room is his, his identity. So we could say that this is a man who's, what, I mean, what is he? He's in this lodging house in New York and he has no current connection by his own admission. He's a solitary guy. So his life is in possessions. I mean, I remember um, the various pop songs about that, uh, about your books and your records, you know. And that was that was as I was a young man moving around from place to place. I lugged with me books, records, photographs, and they. The, my life was in those objects, you know. Um, and in many cases, listening to other people's music and reading other people's stories, a lot of my life was invested in. Say, for example. Um, you know, Hawkwind albums, but also um, Tolkien and other, when I was, things I was, um, Twin Peaks, things I've been a real fanboy of at different stages in my life, you know. And so, yeah, he's, I think he's in some sense, it's about losing his identity. But other opinions are available and I might be completely wrong there, but... Um, but it's fun to speculate, isn't it? I'm sure. I like uh, when people put in the comments and put, oh, well, I think about it. And I go, oh, yeah, wow, I didn't realise that. I didn't get that. And then you've said so. I think, oh, you're probably right. But um, anyway, a good call from Jay, I think. Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, a a Clarimondi, um under the um, thing, sign of the hourglass, isn't it? The, the Bruno Schultz story. And you come to the end of that and you think, what's that about? So I think it's that feel of story rather than a neatly turned out like an E.F. Benson story whereby it is a fairly neat thing. Um, but there we are, that was good. So I'm, I've been away a lot of the summer and I'm having to get another job. So I'll end up with two jobs plus my podcasting. So I'm, I'm struggling for time because I have to do a lot of all this pointless mandatory training. If you've ever worked for organisations, they go, right, you have all these online courses you need to do and we need to see you've had this training and they're all four hours long or two hours long and there's 12 of them and you've got to do them by and you're like you're just going through these pointless bloody courses that there's an i don't learn like that i'm, I'm just not going to remember anything like that but it's it's box ticking isn't it i'm just old now um, and you might say why do the job and i'd, I'd answer um i need the money so okay and all, uh, on top of that don't get too outraged on my behalf because people are. I've published books on Amazon since about 2014 and, you know, people have different views about Amazon and I'm aware of that. But, you know, money trickled in at certain times. I've written things that done okay, um, particularly in the early days. Anyway, um, some guy has filed a complaint against one of my books saying I've used a phrase in the subtitle that he's trademarked. Now, I've seen no evidence that this is the case, and it just seems an ordinary phrase to me, and I've used it inadvertently and ignorantly, and I'm sure his trademark in the US is not valid in other territories, but Amazon, in their wisdom, have terminated my account after nine years. They've just gone, that's it. You can't have access to your books. You will p be paid no more royalties, even those outstanding to you. And then when you um, you contact them, they just send you these cut-and-paste replies. Thank you for publishing on Amazon. Sorry about doing the accent. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm not, mate. You've just stopped me. So, and, they, you know, you can just imagine that I don't know who is in charge of these departments, but um, I, have, I just imagine a call centre in some remote province of Brazil or, or somewhere, you know, um, staffed by 15-year-olds uh, who have no knowledge of any of these things and they just kind of do an algorithm. But I may be being unfair to them there. 
or not. I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's not their fault. They work for the beast, don't they? But I think the lesson from that, and, and in a way I was a bit put out, so I'm saying don't be outraged for me. And and in, I like to think, and this is a hard one because if you look at your life and things happen, you think, well, but maybe things do happen for a reason. And I'm, I'm open to being challenged on that because, as I say, there's some terrible, tragic things happening. You think, I can't really make sense of that. But um, at least if this has jolted me to say you cannot rely these big companies, you know, we'll mention Amazon, but you know the rest, the one, the one with the, the, the Apple logo, that's a bit of a giveaway. Um, the other one, FB and the TikToky and all of these things, they're just, they're not your friends. Um, Microsoft, not your friends. Um, even the one that I rely on for money for this, not your friends. They just cut you off as if you were and then stamp on you as if you're a beetle and if you rely on them for things come the day when that big boot heel comes down yeah don't the mistake is so uh, with that um become a patron because i've got a little bit more control over that not completely because it goes through patreon but uh um they have no they don't want to control me and they don't want to stop me. So I can't see, well, famous last words, but I can't see Patreon closing it down. So, yeah, people always say, have an independent link to people who like your work. Don't don't rely on going through people like Amazon or YouTube or anybody like that. You know, you need to have, or, or even the podcast thing or Apple. Uh, you know, you've got to, you anyway, Spotify. Yeah, all of these people. Yeah, they're not your friends. They're none of our friends, mate. Just... Trust me. Anyway, on that. Otherwise, I'm fine, you know. Uh, the dogs are okay. I'm going to try and go through Ingram Spark now. I've always been put off because you have to design your own book covers and do it as a PDF and it has to be the right size for the spines. And I thought, oh, goodness me. And then the distribution, blah, blah, blah. So it's a pain. So Amazon was convenient, you know. and it, and But convenient isn't always good. And, uh, yeah, so the beast has shown its teeth or its true colours, and there we are. But no, it, it spurs me to look at more independent ways, and actually I'm really glad about that. So I hope you are all well. I'm well. Been out for a walk with the dogs. I'm, we've got to go and get some... Um, we've got to the vets to get some... Yeah, tablets. I won't say what kind, because dogs have needs that, you know, that sound... <laughs> so a euphemism here... <laughs> really struggling you know and they need some flea powder and worm tablets which um if some if you're very squeamish you might go oh no but it's just a real life it's real life and then i'm going to probably take him for another walk and uh i've just been collecting loads i went to the bookshop to get some more books i'm like oh i've got so many books to read um i'm looking at hell house by richard matheson which i've never read uh if it if it was a um I would love to narrate that, but it's a biggish one. Remember I did Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier on Mondays on YouTube. It took me three months to do to, to the whole thing and put it out. Hell House is, is perhaps even bigger, so, um, and there may be copyright issues, but, uh, so I probably won't do that. But I have ideas for doing the novel-length things. I might, do, um, I might do Hound of the Baskervilles, Canterville Ghost, that gets a lot of people request that, so I think I probably will do that. Really love to do um, the picnic, picnic at Hanging, Hanging Rock, the Australian um, novella. Good length, that 
I'd like to do again. I've, I've, I enjoy Shirley Jackson, so uh, we have always lived at the castle. So there is loads and loads of things that I could be doing. So, But unfortunately, I've got to go to work as well. I was reading an article, Kate Kitson, is it? Who had this, and she was running two jobs as well as building up her brand. And she kept the, the proper job for the money. And then she, she kind of jacked that in and was worried she would struggle. But actually her creative work flourished because she was focusing completely on it. And so I just wish I was brave enough to do that. But um, so far not. I may be. I may be. Okay. Anyway, I hope you're all well. It's warm here. Um, unnaturally warm for September. But let's not even go there.
consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patrons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron. You can download them as well which is more difficult on podcasts and on YouTube. But if you want to become a patron, you get the double whammy of supporting my work, which enables me to do more work. Imagine that. You pay me to do more, and I do more work for you and produce more stories for you, which is, and, and you know, I appreciate it, so you get my love and gratitude. And also, you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.